you can follow along with me as we uh, are going to use some PowerPoint visuals to uh, do some scripture and look at the verses of scripture out of Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, as well as John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. This passage of scripture, these passages of scripture, uh, come not only from the two gospel accounts, but they're also, the, the, the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem is also recounted in Mark's, uh, not only in Mark's, but also in Matthew and Luke's gospel. All four gospel accounts tell of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That is a significant thing, and that's why I call this the historical significance of Palm Sunday, when he was exclaimed as Lord, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means literally translated, save us. As the complete Jewish Bible, as I was reading this week, was saying, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna meaning, please save us, a plead for salvation. And that was exactly why he came. But the salvation that he brought was different than what they thought it was going to be that particular week. So we have selected as our text this morning uh, from the Gospel of Mark as well as John. And John has a unique perspective on things, and we'll see that later. But it also says to us that because of these four Gospel accounts, that there's some historical significance in that. The early Roman historian Josephus even recounted in his histories that during the Passover week, as many as three million people came through Jerusalem. That's an incredible number of people. Judea and Galilee, the populations combined, hardly equal that. But through that time... We know that the Jews gathered in great numbers to celebrate the Passover week. And that is precisely what Jesus came to do. So let's talk about the events that led up to that. As you look at some of the Gospel accounts, we see that as he came down from Jericho, there were two blind men there at Jericho who were healed. One of them we know by the name of uh, uh, Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus was the blind man who was healed by Jesus in unique and special ways. Jesus also, during that time before he had journeyed to Jerusalem, visited with Zacchaeus. Remember, he was criticized for that because Zacchaeus was a tax collector. One of the most despised people in all of Judea were those who collected taxes for the government, especially for Rome. And yet Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house, visited with him, and salvation, he said, this day has come to one who is of the tribe of Israel. Jesus then began his journey to Jerusalem. He set his face toward Jerusalem, and he told his disciples what was going to happen once he got there. And six days before the Passover... He arrived at Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. Some estimate it was about two miles outside of Jerusalem itself. But in Bethany, there was the house where his friend Lazarus and Martha 
and Mary lived. And he came to visit with them the day before he went to Jerusalem to be exalted and acclaimed by the crowds as the Messiah. But the earliest account we find begins with Mark. And I say the earliest account, most scholars agree that the first gospel that was written was the gospel of Mark. And so we have from earliest times, when those gospels were recorded, Mark's account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. It says, as they approached Jerusalem, at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks of you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave him gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. Those who were in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. Hosanna. Hosanna, the Greek word says, which is a transliteration of two Hebrew words that mean really save us. Please save us, as the complete Jewish Bible says. A plead for God for salvation. They exclaimed Jesus. They exclaimed him saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They also used the scripture you'll find in Psalm 118, verse 26, which says, Blessed is one who comes in the name of the Lord. They probably didn't even realize, perhaps, that they were using a scriptural reference out of the Psalms, but so they did. They also used the prophecy of Zechariah, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. God's prophecy was coming true. They didn't even realize it at that time until the events of the crucifixion and resurrection had taken place, but they began to understand how God was dealing with them in a very unique and special way, and that Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophecies of them long ago. Also, there's then a perspective that I want to draw your attention to from the Gospel of John. And it says, On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, 
even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered what these things were written of him, and that he had done these things to that he had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. That means the resur- the, uh, the raising of the dead of, from, of Lazarus from the tomb. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. The Pharisees have been plotting for a long time, especially since that time that Lazarus had been raised from the dead to crucify Jesus, to kill him, to murder him. And they intended in every way. And their plot was, they thought, really formulated as a consequence of the raising of Lazarus. It was such an event that all the people were talking about it. You can imagine how Judea and Jerusalem were aflame with the news of this resurrection miracle. That indeed Jesus had done something that was unique in every sense of the word. Though he had raised uh, Jairus' daughter, and though he had raised the young man uh, whose mother was grieving, this was a different kind of resurrection. Lazarus had been dead for several days, and Jesus called him out of the tomb. What a magnificent miracle it was. And it, the whole country had to be abuzz at this, and everyone talking about it. And now they hear that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, and they were ready for him coming, ready for his coming. And the Pharisees then had plotted and they, and along with the Sadducees, finally were able to pull off the innocent crucifixion of Jesus, the innocent death of a man who was pure and who was indeed sinless in every way, the perfect man. Luke also records an event that I thought was significant. And it says in Luke chapter 19, verses 39 and 40, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And Luke was really saying to them, uh, as he recorded this, as as the disciples were rebuked by the Pharisees, the chief chief priests and and the scribes, that indeed in every way they were saying, No, we don't want to hear this. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But Luke had recorded Jesus' response, which simply said, If these don't cry out, the stones will. Even inanimate objects will give praise to the glory of God for what he's going to do. We turn now to Matthew, and it says this. And this basically is an account that says this is the time after the entrance. Mark tells us that after, after he came into Jerusalem, he went to the temple and he looked around and did nothing, and then he left and went back to Bethany. 
Matthew tells us a little bit more when he said, when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. You know, as you read the gospel accounts, and I would encourage you this week, perhaps in your daily devotionals, to spend some time reading the gospel accounts of what Jesus did after he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And you'll see and notice many other things, his great discourses, his, the parables he, to, he told, the miracles that he performed. A significant week in every sense of the word, which I'm sure in the minds of the Pharisees and the Sadducees had to solidify their plot to kill him. They, they saw and heard what he was saying. They could do nothing but stiffen their resistance toward him. And so they plotted openly in every way to trick him, to get him to say something that was blasphemous as they saw it, something that for which they could condemn him. And so they falsely accused him. And we find these same crowds. Now imagine this. The same crowds, and many I'm sure, were in those crowds that were proclaiming him as the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us. Hosanna, those same crowds in five short days were saying, crucify him, crucify him. If you are a friend of Caesar's, you will not release this man. And when, he, and when Pilate gave them a choice between Barabbas or Jesus, they shouted that they wanted Barabbas, the murderer. And more tragically than that, we find that in Matthew's gospel, it says, May his blood be on our heads and on our children. And on our children. Imagine what that means. When these who were so hateful toward him, who despised him, who had rejected him as the Messiah, were shouting not only for his crucifixion, but they were openly proclaiming that they were willing to take responsibility for his death. Not only would his blood be on their hands, but also on their children. I wonder sometimes when I read through history how significant that was. Matthew 21 tells us, And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. And he left them and went out to the city of Bethany and spent the night there. Jesus then began to proclaim in a very unique way who he was openly Think, think of this, before that time, at Palm Sunday, 
when Jesus had asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do, you, who do men say that I am? He first asked them. And he said, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're another prophet or this. But he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered in confession, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied back, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this. And so the confession that Peter made that day, announcing the fact that he had believed in every sense of the word that Jesus was the anointed one of Israel, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And yet Jesus told them, don't advertise this, in essence is what he really said. Don't, don't let this be known throughout, the, throughout the, the, the country. Be quiet about it. Keep it quiet. And so he did until that Palm Sunday when he came into Jerusalem in all of its, in, in its glory. And I say Jerusalem had to be a glorious sight for Jesus to see as the crowds were acclaiming him and exalting him. And yet, like I said, four, five short days later, they were shouting for his crucifixion. So he said in John chapter 12, identifying himself, Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, and because of the Pharisees, who were not confessing him, for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. What a tragic, absolutely tragic and sad statement this is in the scriptures. They love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Are we not sometimes like that? Have we not sometimes fallen victim to that kind of an attitude whereby... We are somewhat embarrassed in this day and age by what we profess to believe as Christians. Sometimes we become ashamed even of those things that the scriptures openly declare to be God-inspired, to be profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God might be equipped for every good work. Yet the Pharisees at that time were embarrassed. Those who even believed were ashamed to admit that they had believed. And I'm sure that some of them probably held back praise on that Palm Sunday because of the fact that they didn't want to be identified with the group who had believed in him. It also tells us in John chapter 12, verses 44 through 26, Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who, re who rejects me and does not receive my sayings, has, has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. For I did not speak of my own initiatives, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment 
as to what to say and what to speak, I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. There's some lessons to be learned from this triumphal entry that Jesus made into Jerusalem that Sunday. First of all, as we have said before, it is the perfect fulfillment of the prophecy, not only of Zechariah, but of many others, of who he was and what he came to do. It was the public claim of his messiahship, where he no longer asked them to be quiet about it, but he openly accepted the, ac- the acclamation of the crowds because they were really announcing, here, here is the one who we've heard so much about, who raised Lazarus from the dead. Here is the one now who has come to save us, who deliver us from the Romans. There had been bitterness ever since 63 B.C., when the Roman general Pompey entered Jerusalem and conquered it, lock, stock, and barrel. And yet, the the hatred that the Jews had for the Romans at that time, their oppressors, their conquerors, was vivid. So his claim of Messiahship seemed to them to say, this is the anointed one of Israel who has come to rescue us, to deliver us from the Romans. He alone will certainly save us. His choice of a donkey was significant that day when he sat upon it. The donkey was a sign of peace. Yet, you would have expected a conquering hero to enter Jerusalem that day, I'm sure as Pompey must have in 63 B.C., on a white charger. That was the significant thing. In the Second World War, I can remember that uh, the crowds were exclaiming uh, the general, Zukov, as he rode through Red Square to celebrate the victory over the Germans. And he read, he rode into Red Square on a white charger. He was an expert horseman. He demonstrated it that day. And it was exclaimed, as a matter of fact, it was such a, 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 a faux pas that uh, Stalin mispla- later on uh, displaced him from any kind of leadership. But he came as a conquering hero that day. Among all the Russian generals, Zhukov was, was proclaimed as the conqueror of the great enemy and the great patriotic war, as they called it. Jesus didn't come that way. He came humbly, riding the colt of a donkey, the foal of a donkey, humbly, as the disciples put their cloaks on the donkey, and he rode him into Jerusalem that short day. We see also the lordship of Jesus in this whole thing. And closely allied to that is the fact that Jesus had sovereign control over his fate. This wasn't an accident that just happened. This wasn't just a spontaneous event as Jesus rode into Jerusalem that Palm Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon. But it was a special time that had been planned and prophesied for. And Jesus willingly then not only proclaimed his messiahship, but also that he was the one in control over his fate. He knew what he was going to face. He had already predicted that he was going to die. And yet, 
They did not believe him. The disciples just could not comprehend or grasp that truth fully and ever since the word. We also see that Jesus doesn't always meet our expectations. The expectations of the crowd that day were that Jesus had come and was being proclaimed as the Messiah to deliver them from Roman rule, to free them from the tyranny of this conquering power. And that's not why he came. He did not come for that reason. He came solely to fulfill the prophecies that he was going to truly be the Messiah, but a different Messiah than they imagined. Not a political leader, not a conquering hero, but a spiritual person, a spiritual Lord, a one whose kingdom was not of this earth. And he came for that purpose, to deliver himself once and for all as our sacrifice, the sacrifice that we need to deliver us from sins. Sometimes we often think that same way about Jesus in our day and age. We expect him to do certain things. We have expectations that he's going to give us uh, a life sometimes of comfort, of blessings. And we do not accept what God has dealt us as being from God. That we, we then therefore really kind of say, Romans 8.28 must not be true because God certainly can cause all things to work for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But we, we don't remember that. We think that we suffer sometimes unneedlessly and that God must not be thinking of us or caring about what we go through. He has not met our expectations in what we have achieved in life or who we have married or who we have associated with or the job that we have or the calling that we have. But God is sovereign and this this earth is moving according to his plan, as it did that Sunday morning when Jesus entered into Jerusalem with the acclamation of the crowds that gathered there. Hosanna! God save us! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I challenge you this morning, will you not accept that Jesus is in your life if you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior? That you can trust him fully and completely for all things. That he might have for you much more than you can begin to imagine. Not just human expectations. But according to his plan, his purpose. I ask you this morning to think on this scripture. To read this week as I had mentioned before. The things that happened during that holy week when Jesus was in the temple teaching. Matthew 24, 25 gives us a great idea of the things to come. I challenge you to read that this week. Think about Jesus and his second coming. He's going to come triumphantly to Jerusalem again in a different way than he came on that Palm Sunday morning. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you so much of who you are, what you are, And what you have done for us through Jesus Christ, your son. Father, thank you for our Messiah, the Christ, the son of you, the living God. That we can trust you fully and completely. That you have come to deliver us and save us. 
You have rescued us from our sins. You have paid the price through the blood of Jesus. You have saved us. Just as you were willing to save those that Palm Sunday who cried out, Hosanna. Lord, our Hosanna has been fulfilled in Christ. And for that reason, we give thanks to you always, above all else, for him who alone is Lord and Savior. Speak to our hearts this week, Father. Bring us to a mindful awareness of what is going on about us, of what this week means to us as believers. And Father, lead us and guide us in your paths for your namesake and for your glory. We ask and pray these things in the name above all names, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.